My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is the multidimensional Brad Rowe. Brad and I got introduced by guest number two of the Wonder Dome, Nabil Oji. And Brad is doing some really incredible work right now on the forefront of, of cannabis policy and cannabis research. In particular, how we make this new emerging domain of entrepreneurship a space where people who have faced the worst and often unjust repercussions of the war on drugs can have access to the entrepreneurial upsides of the legalization of marijuana and cannabis in places around the country. In addition to that important work, Roe is a lecturer in public policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Uh, he has also worked for over a decade working with homeless populations, homeless job seekers, teaching them courses in stress management, goal setting, and relapse prevention. And before all of this, Brad had a remarkable multifaceted career in Hollywood including the GLAAD Media Award-winning film for Outstanding Film Shelter, which was about a young man who finds comfort in the arms of his best friend's older brother, played by Brad. And the film did a remarkable job bringing nuance and sensitivity into the romantic relationship that develops between these two men. So suffice it to say that Brad draws from a number of different experiences as he sits at this moment in his life and we explore all of that together and the ways in which his early work as an actor and his current work as a policymaker actually weave together into a greater coherent whole. So if you're tuning into this, my wish for you is that you take away the possibility, in fact, almost the inevitable reality that life will not be a straight path, but that if you listen to your curiosity, if you follow the stories that are in front of you, if you follow the questions that are waiting for you, if you, if you pay attention to, to other people deeply, to their needs, to their desires, the possibility for exploring life more fully and for deepening into life in a way that's more meaningful starts to emerge. And Brad embodies that really beautifully. So let's get settled in. And hear what Brad has for us. Brad, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you for having me, Andy. Yeah, <laughs> such a treat. Such a treat. I'm so glad our mutual friend Nabil, who by the way was one of one of the earliest guests on the show, got us connected and Wow. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. He's a special dude. Amazing uh, when these people that we meet in life uh, somehow are the uh, the connectors to other people and places uh, in, in the world. And 
yeah, who, who knows how we would have met and who knows uh, where this conversation we're about to have, who, who this, it's, it's going to connect or, uh, or, or uh, give us the opportunity to, to bring into our lives uh, just through what we're going to be uh, sharing together today. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And if it's all right, I'd actually like to share the, the insight you had right before we started recording. Oh my gosh, here, right? yeah, please, please. So I, uh, some of my listeners will know because I reference it that I often lead a meditation before we start. So you and I just did that. And, and it really connects to the fact that you, it's not just you and I talking, but that other people will hear this. We don't know who they are or when they'll hear it, but both you and I have been on a, a parental journey. You're sort of in the later stages of it with a, with a college age son. And I'm in the early stages with, with a preschool age daughter and a, and a newborn son. But there's just this recognition that in the midst of this pandemic, there are lots of quote unquote adults, right? Which is a whole, a world, a word filled with lots of baggage, but there are humans who are once children who now have children of their own. And, uh, and I just really appreciated the, the, the recognition that whoever hears this, maybe if they can kind of hear it from that place of the child inside of them, or from that place of the child that they care for, that sort of freshness, that beauty, that, that innocence that's available to children that sort of can feel like it disappears when we're adults. So I just really appreciate you kind of naming that as a specific intention for today. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Um, you know, it was, it was fun because we were talking about the, uh, your, your kids and then we we're just talking about kids in general. And, and during this time of pandemic uh, where they don't quite have the opportunities for social interaction that kids in any other period in time would. Yeah. And yeah. just the the abject thrill and excitement they get when they see another little being their same size with these, you know, pudgy cheeks and soft skin <laughs> who, who aren't these monster-sized adults with uh, hair and all, all the answers and kind of uh, who are hustling out and about to do God knows what, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they're just present and they're connected. And they, 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 the look between two kids when uh, when they realize even the most simple thing, you know, just like how great the snow is around them. Uh, it's just the eye, their eyes get so big and they're so thrilled and it's so fun and it's so funny. And uh, it's an amazing place. So thank you for acknowledging uh, that about uh, the children and all of us. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that we were discussing before was how at some point um, when when kids... Uh, and my daughter's like trying to get in right now. I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, she's like, I want in on this. Like, what's yes. going on in there? Come yeah. on in, come on in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, at some point, uh, you know, kids kind of start to break off into cliques and to other groups and then you get sort of leaders of those cliques and then you've got to we sort of straightiate out uh who are the uh who are the masters and who are the ones who are serving mm. to keep this uh mm. this this microcosm of the world uh alive and thriving and um that i think that's where we kind of start to take on roles in life and uh but before that time, there is this period in life where there aren't any roles. Mm. Uh, mm. You're you're not the master and you're not the server and everyone's equal. And we're all just out here uh, having fun with the white fluffy stuff, the snow and uh, 
And it's just, it's just the best. And isn't it, isn't it just the best? Everything just the best. Isn't it just the best? <laughs> yeah. And, until it's not, and you stub your toe and it's just not the best anymore. And it's just the worst. Isn't it the worst? It's just, you know, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no nuance. There's no gray areas. It's all either the best or the worst. And, uh, it's all just immediate and instant and, uh, it's it's either incredibly beautiful or incredibly ugly all at the same time, and um, I, I, it's hard to do. And I'm fifty, uh, but I still have tried to uh, bring the idea of the innocence of childhood and that fresh set of glasses—not necessarily rose-colored glasses—but uh, tried to remove the fog of experience mm, mm. Uh, as as I as I see the world. Try to see people and things just as they are. As as a good artist friend of mine says, draw draw what you see, not what you know. Mm. And um, you know, you try try to really look at things for what they are, not what my preconceptions or their preconceptions of the world are. Um, so I, I thank you for uh, for thank you for connecting us up with the. Uh, with the children today, because uh, my gosh, hopefully within a year, this is all going to be ancient history. Knock on wood, and uh, and they'll get to see, you know, hundreds of times more of the little critters that yeah. they are than they, than they get to see now while they're sequestered away, uh, you know, with their their families and those 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 old folks that begat them. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, here's to it. And here's to anyone who's listening. Just we invite you as best as you're able to be with us in that childlike way and that sort of exploratory way. And that feels like a really nice segue to why I invited you on the show more generally, Brad, because I encounter you as someone who's been on a pretty remarkable kind of creative journey, service journey, someone who, uh, at least from the outside looking in, has reinvented himself a few times, or perhaps from the inside looking out, that doesn't feel like reinvention. It feels like evolution or growth. We can explore that. But yeah, you just just have a, an artist's heart and, and an advocate's determination and commitment and, and an academic's kind of deep thinking and philosophy. And it's, a really, it's been really cool to see how all of those intersect in your life. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, Yes, it's true. I, you know, I, I, you know, I have the aches and pains of a fifty-year-old, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was, I was over. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Milwaukee now, uh, and I, you know, had to had to go get a sort of a, a checkup with my doctor. And of course, I have a history now. I have a medical history. You know, <laughs> I, was like, you know I was like, where did that come from? You know, I've, I've actually, I've, I've uh, had a few. Uh, bumps and dings and uh you know i've had i've taken some medications and i've had some things done and you know i kind of go wow where did this happen because you know i'm i'm one of the one of the reasons i'm in milwaukee right now is uh you know my dad's on what what was supposed to be his final days and his final journey in life and uh, he may end up outliving all of us uh, but he was he was put into hospice and declared imminent uh and those two events happened in September and in December, and uh, he he's still with us and kicking. And, and my mm-hmm. mom is my mom's in her uh, in her early eighties. She just turned eighty, and uh, you know physical challenges, the challenges of aging happening. And so, of course, I sit there and I'm kind of pouring through these uh, 
you know, these pages and pages of medications and procedures and doctors and, you know, doing that whole thing. And so yesterday was kind of interesting. I was Oh wow! Holy cow! I'm on the uh, I'm on the cha- I'm on, not on chapter one. I'm on uh, maybe chapter four out of twenty. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm 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 well into this book. So it's uh, wow. it's it's interesting to sort of be connected with that mortality. And uh, I have to say, for all that it is a reflection of the you know the tough things in life, um, and and life life is tough. It's it's always going to be tough. And I've I've always tried to level set my expectations on that. Um, but it's also beautiful and 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 reveals so many so many great things and so many joys in life. Um, I've really enjoyed spending time with my parents at this period in their lives, and uh, you know, I've and, and right down to the fact that I've seen you know incredible cognitive decline in my dad. Um, you know, we have the conversations I would have with my son when he was maybe four or five now. Mm. Um, and, uh, so trying to, trying to level sort of that type of engagement with someone who's always been, um, you know, someone revered and, uh, and, a wow. uh, and, yeah. and, and an adult and a, and a protector and a provider and a mentor and, you know, all of those things. Um, so, you know, we, we, we talk sometimes about the reversal of roles, um, and so it's, it's interesting to be there, but what a joy to be able to spend time with my mom and to have her, uh, you know, a, a around and to be able to go out and take walks or to go have a meal with her or to, uh, she got her second vaccine shot the other day. Hey, oh my go. gosh. So thrilling and so exciting to be able to celebrate a little bit with her on that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, to, to, to sort of touch back with what you're talking about on this creative journey, um, what what stands out to me is, you know, I woke up this morning and I had this like, and, and trust me, I can be a grump, I can be a, you know, I, I can I can be all kinds of, uh, you know, t- typical uh, old, old person things. Uh, <laughs> But I will, I mean, I really woke up excited like a teenager this morning. Um, mm. And maybe it was because we were going to be talking, Andy. I think maybe, <laughs> maybe that was. Maybe I'll that happily was take a little, if that, I'll happily take a little credit for that, that energy. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe that was the impetus for it. But I, you know, I thought to myself, my gosh, wouldn't it be really, really fun to, uh, to continue my journey of education and to be able to. Uh, continue teaching um, maybe at a, at a broader level. Um, uh, and actually I'll tell you specifically the idea that came to mind was uh, to, to go back and get my PhD. And, uh, wow. and so I think about that and I'm gone, you know, and, and of course, you know, as soon as I'm making my coffee this morning, the reality of it sets in, I go, okay, well, if you got into a PhD program next year, you'd be done with your PhD when you're 55 or 56. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it's like, am I going to have uh, 10 years, 20 years uh, to be able to teach and to do research and all those things? And, and uh, you know, it's, but it's, but the, the excitement of recreating and redefining ourselves throughout life, I, I really hope that continues for 
for everyone. It certainly has for me. And I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. I mean, every time you dare to dream, uh, you know, you have to, you have to throw on the Teflon, you got to get that, you know, whatever, uh, water off a duck's back. You got to have the pugilist side in you, be able to take a few punches. Um, and I've certainly, yeah, I've certainly been through the ringer a few times, uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's it's only me I have to thank for that abuse. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I you know, every, every time I get one of these ideas to go, oh, yeah, maybe I should be an actor. Maybe I should be a writer. Maybe I should teach. Maybe I should be a researcher. Maybe I'm interested in policy. Maybe I want to maybe I want to try some. Maybe I want to. Well, you know, maybe I want to be a parent. Maybe I want to be married, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, and uh, and of course, and I, this is something we we're sharing before. I'm going through a separation right now. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was, uh, that was the genesis of a different thought process. And, you know, maybe there's a different corner to turn in life. Um, and you know, that's, that's really, uh, an, an interesting thing that I don't necessarily put into the same category as, uh, entrepreneurial discovery or sort of, uh, the, youthful inhibition of, of thought and of places that you want to go in life, but to, uh, and, and I think that possibly in some way, anyone who's, who's going through this, who's going through a separation or a divorce or some sort of change in their status of adult relationship, you know, whether their marriage has been recognized or not, you know, depending on what yeah. state you live in and what your gender, what your sexual, um, declarations are, uh, it's really, really hard, but it does come from a place where, and I think this is something I was hoping we could maybe explore, Andy, was um, from the moment I had this morning, when you wake up, mm. you wake up one morning and you go, oh, this is an idea that just seems right. This is an idea that I've been pondering for a while, that I've been thinking about, that I, I want to, that I want to explore more deeply. And um and of course, in the case of something that's tough, like a separation or a divorce, um, it's it's really it's uh, the ramifications of it are are much tougher. Uh, they're yeah. very real. They're very yeah. real. And there's yeah, there's every reason in the world to say to put that one back to bed, man. No, no. And you do. And many people do. And I did. Yeah. I did. Um, but at some point, you sort of wake up and and. Uh, and you realize that it's the it's the right thing, but uh, you know the troubling thing is that decisions like that uh, come at a cost. Yeah, and they come at the cost of the person you're a partner with. And as you mentioned before, I'm you know I'm the father of a college age kid, but uh, you know an 18 year old is uh, still a kid in many ways. And, yeah, and so yeah. it's it's uh, you know it's, it's, he's he's mature and independent, and doing great things, and will do great things in the world. Um, it's still a hard direction to go, but the discovery that that is a that that is a direction you want to go in life is um, is uh, it's it's a eureka moment in and of itself in its own way. And, totally. Uh, yeah, and I you know I I'd say I even hesitate to talk about that in this forum because it is a private matter because it is something that is so sensitive because. You know, it's hurtful. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, and I get the sense, it's, based on how we talked before, that you, like, are really doing this from a place of care for your son 
for yourself, for your partner. And I want to honor like all the heartache, the, 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 the complexity and, and, and also what I'm tuning into. And maybe we just, maybe you just saying that is enough that you're in the midst of this complexity. And that's beautiful for anyone who's listening to just honor, like age 50, you can both be, be navigating a relationship that you've had for 20 years and navigating your identity that you've had for, for 20 years. I'm going to get a PhD at age 50. Oh (laughs) shit. And I'm going to be like a different, I'm going to be in a different way of relating to my partner and my kid at age 50. Whoa. Right. And there's Mm. sort of a way what I'm tuning into as you share all this is maybe a stance that you take that any of us could potentially take a stance of kind of like, this eureka stance of wow this is where life has brought me what's next and i'm gonna i'm i kind of can't wait to find out what's next even as i even even as i navigate this rough road i sense that at the top of this mountain there's a vista or a horizon that i i i have to i can't wait to see it whatever it is Mm. and i'm really just tuning into that energy right now yeah absolutely um and it's, uh, I, th- I think that's been a driving force for me. And I, I don't know where it came from, quite honestly. Um, but I, I, do, I do have that uh, great eagerness to, uh, uh, hold on a second. I think I'm getting, a, do I have all my alerts? Oh, I don't have my alerts turned off. Okay. I don't, uh, hopefully you can't hear that on your end. But, no, um, I can't hear it. No worries. Yep. And we'll okay, just, I cool. can just edit out this little, little part right yep. here. Okay, cool. All right. No worries. Um, anyways, you know, I, th- I think that one of the things that comes up from your, your comment there that really hits me is, um, is the sense of, of discovery. What is, what is around the corner? And I, I do, I'm, I'm so excited to see every day what, what the universe is going to, uh, reveal to me. And I think that that's been one of the great gifts of, reconnecting with nature this last year and i think one of the last times you and i talked i was out on one of my river walks and i yes, you know, I, yes. love, I love getting out and uh, seeing the ducks and uh watching watching the uh the, the the rivers flow and that this winter has been so interesting we've had so many such a long period of very very cold days that it's been interesting to watch the rivers freeze over um, and watch the the ducks adapt to that, and um, you know they're they're just looking for little snacks on the bottom of, of the of the uh, of the river, and uh, and they want to you know, they want to pull something up, and that that access to to food and things it gets very difficult when it gets cold. And of course, you know now it's it's warmed up, and the and the water surfaces are opening up again. Um, but I, I just uh, I, I, I marvel at the, the ebb and flow of nature and uh, the adaptability of different creatures to survive. Mm. Um, mm. It just, you know, despite, despite different uh, harshnesses or, or environments. And I, I just, you know, I, I look at these, these geese or these ducks, you know, and it's, uh, it's, the, it's below zero wind chill. And there's, you know, not gale force, but there's strong winds coming through and they're just getting beaten. Uh, and they just, you know, they're just kind of like, yeah, this is what we do. This yeah. Is how, this, this, yeah. Is, this is how we do it. We're, we're all right. We're going to be okay. We do this thing. And, um, and I think human beings are the same way. I think we, uh, 
I think we're very adaptable. Uh, we, uh, we sometimes uh, ask, ask the uh, frog in the well, not of the sea. I mean, we, we sometimes, uh, I, I think, don't realize how tough we have it or how good we have it, for that matter. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and we just get up every day and survive and thrive in the best way that we can with the tools that we have, with the resources that we have. And um, I think that that's been one of the things that's really driven me to be so um, so interested in, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with incarcerated youth. I've spent a lot of time with, uh, uh, you know, worked almost nine years with the homeless population. Actually, I'm back, I'm back doing that again. I'm, I'm working with homeless job seekers uh, to help them uh, figure out that journey. Um, and right now with the city of LA, I'm working with a with a, a group that's trying to bring resources to social equity applicants trying to get involved in the cannabis industry. And um, man, it's like each of these, each of these men and women out there trying to start these businesses or or trying to get a, you know, trying to re-enter back into their communities after a rough shot with a criminal justice system. Or trying to get their family together after some really hard times, some economic hard times, or family hard times if they've if they've spent some time on the streets. Um, I am absolutely amazed at the amount of resilience that we have as human beings. And you know, from from the outside, you know, you might drive past a group of people living under a bridge and go, "Oh my gosh, you know, how could you do that? How could you stand it? How could you endure it for a day?" You know, you might think about people who get locked up or who are in the criminal justice system, or you look at people who are trying to start a small business with nothing mm. and go, mm. what, what are they thinking? How, how do they, you know, how are they going to do this? And yet, you know, every day, thousands and thousands, thousands of people in really, really tough conditions um, get themselves up out of bed. Yeah. And go ahead and put in the hard work and just put one foot in front of the other and they get it done. And the difference is, is that the small guy usually gets knocked down a little bit more than the big guy. Mm. Uh, mm. They don't have the deep pockets to get through some of the rougher times. And so they've got to get more creative to make things happen. But um, I've always found uh, sort of uh, a, a deep connection with the, with the people who are working through this stuff. And um, I don't know why that particularly fell on me. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a white kid from the Midwest uh, yeah. from a middle-class neighborhood in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Why, uh, why I identified with people who are working through the struggle, but I guess at some point it just kind of hit me where I said, well, um, if, if I'm not connected with this, if this isn't something that I'm going to participate in or, or help out or be a part of, um, then who is? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, right. what, uh, I, I have some capacity and some resources. I have some flexibility, some leeway, some give, some reservoir that I can, that I can tap into that, that, um, that allows me to, to work at these things and try to understand them academically and in a real way. And um, so it's been really, it's been such a joy. I, I got to say these last few months have been 
a lot of fun working with some groups like the Los Angeles Metropolitan Churches, and uh, mm. which is a, mm. a group of 80 black churches in L.A. that are uh, working with the community to try to develop different work opportunities, uh, entrepreneurial opportunities, uh, you know, everything from expungement to, you know, a lot of this is, you know, they, I, I think the origins of the organization is, is from the reentry community. And uh, um, I've just had so much fun working with these guys. I'm trying to come up with creative solutions to, uh, you know, give, give David a little shot, uh, give, give him a little shot against Goliath. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, well, maybe, cool. it's really cool. It's a lot of fun. I can tell. And maybe we can tune, like you sort of said, I don't know quite how I landed in this, but maybe we can try and tease that out because one of the, um, mm. or at least tease out a hypothesis about the why. Sure. Because I'm struck from the outside looking in and from the sort of, you know, in some ways you and I have had, had some, some pretty powerful and, and connected conversations, but there've only been a few. So there's lots mm-hmm. of ways I don't know you and I honor yeah. that, but, but from what I have seen and noticed, there's this really interesting, like the public narrative that I sense a lot of us have is that the, the journey you started is the journey from the Midwest to LA with a spark of like, I'm going to be an actor and you ended up making some some really impactful films, particularly I want to talk about Shelter and Purgatory if we have the time. But like, you know, you, you just kind of went on this sort of very public journey, even if even if not even if not everyone is knows a lot about it. There's a sense of like, oh, yeah, go to Hollywood, become an actor, become a star and and all of that sort of stuff that's in our culture. Mm-hmm. And then and then here we are now, years later. I mean, I think you were you were around 24 or something when you started that. So we're about like quarter century later, you're sitting in a, in a comp- like sort of what to many people would be like a completely different chair. You're, you're teaching policy around criminal justice and, and drug policy at UCLA. You're doing all this work directly with uh, people of all walks of life who are navigating our, our, our prison system. You're thinking about and researching about the school, to prison pipeline. And, and you're like, and I just couldn't be having more fun. Right. Like there's just this wonderful, I think most people go, oh, it'll be really fun to be an actor and don't think about all the hardship. And most people look at the work that you're doing now and be like, God, I could never do that work. And that sounds so emotionally draining. And you're like, I just, I love it. So I wonder if you could talk about that, that paradox in whatever way it's resonating with you as I kind of mirror that, mirror that back to you. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, you're right. It's uh, and 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 I'll I'll preface all this by saying that one of the best lessons that I learned early on when I was out in LA was uh, don't compare your your outsides with someone else's insides. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. I, I, you know, I I think I was attracted, and I, I remember. <laughs> I remember some of these moments I was, I was at, I had three bartending jobs in Madison, Wisconsin. And one of them was a kind of a lunch shift over at Pizzeria Uno's on state street. (laughs) And, uh, I remember I was taking a break and I I just kind of, you know, thrown the trash into the dumpster out in the alley or something like that. I was just uh, hanging out. It was freaking like February or something. So cold. And uh, I was freezing cold. And, um, I just remember, thinking to myself at this point, I was like, I, I just got to get out of here. I got to get out. of here. It's so freaking cold. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Here we are. Uh, it's, uh, 2021, which is almost, you know, like you said, you know, we're a quarter of a century later 
and uh, I couldn't be loving the cold anymore. Uh, and um, I, you know, here I, I'm, ba- I'm back here in Wisconsin again, which is really funny. But you know, at the time I was, you know, I, I traveled, I lived abroad, I for you know, I bounced around a little bit, and uh, I had all, you know, I just wanted to tell stories. I just really wanted to be a storyteller. Mm. And uh, you know, I, oh gosh, you know, I should, I, re- I should really head out. And I want to be a part of this. Hollywood machine, whatever, you know, they're, they're reaching a lot of people They're I want to tell stories. It's where I should go. And I took a couple of screenwriting seminars at Northwestern little weekend things and, uh, and had learned, I you know, sort of, I think, uh, you know, sort of the basic formula of writing screenplays and, uh, had written a couple of things, which I was very excited about. Um, but that that was the moment. I, I still remember it was the dumpster behind Pizzeria Uno's <laughs> on a freezing cold uh, February uh, afternoon, early afternoon, uh, where I made the decision to go. And uh, and so I, I, I came out to L.A. Um, and uh, I got a job at one of, you know, within like six days, I, I, I got a job in the mailroom at, uh, at United Talent Agency, which uh which is, you know, one of, one of the bigger agencies out, out in, uh, out in LA. And, uh, and, and they were great. You know, they, they gave me uh, the opportunity to read scripts and do coverage and all that kind of stuff. And one thing led to another. And, you know, some of these young agents were, they were my friends and they were just as a goof. Uh, certainly when I, I started taking some acting classes uh, for, for fun, uh, decided to start sending my headshots out for auditions and they'd be like, uh, they'd be like, you know, you, you got to go down to Paramount to read for like Klingon five uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> on an episode of uh, Star Trek, whatever, you know, and uh, or uh, we're going to have you go down and you're going to read for uh, the, the the third bartender uh, <laughs> on uh, General Hospital or something like that. <laughs> I was like, you guys stop. You know, you just really they were just making fun. They were just yeah, completely having have it. Have it on, on, right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but you know, sure enough, I, I did, uh, I, I landed, uh, a, a couple of things and got a chance to do some, some fun work. And I, I certainly had a, uh, a, I would say relatively a charmed path, uh, in that, uh, really the first film that I, I was cast in was across from Sean Hayes, who, uh, yeah. went on to Will and Grace fame. And of course, some, you know, many other things, uh, but Sean was from Chicago and I was from Milwaukee. And so they put the two Midwestern kids together for a tape for a read. And, uh, we just improv and came up with some stuff that the producers and directors loved. And so we ended up going to, to, uh, Sundance to the film festival yeah. with this little yeah. Billy's, Billy's Hollywood screen kiss. And, uh, and, and that was, that was the beginning of it. And I, I had a chance to, uh, you know, that, that got me in the door, you know, and it's, and that's all you're looking for is a, a shot to get in the door and you can do with it, whatever you want at that point. Mm. Uh, um, but I, I did really, really enjoy the journey. And I found some great acting teachers uh, who mentored me and, and took me on that journey and said, look, if you work hard at this, you can do it. And, and so, uh, so I did. And, and I, I ended up, uh, you know, working for a solid, I don't know, 15, 17 years or something like that. Really, really enjoyed it. But along the way, um, and I think this is where this sort of transition happened was in, in 2000. So maybe only like five or six years after I'd been in L.A., I started uh, just volunteering to help out homeless people, writing resumes um, at, a, at a job training center. Mm. Um, and then started teaching relapse prevention and stress management and goal setting. And then after a few years of doing that, they're like, well, can you kind of help us write the curriculum? I said, sure. 
and then I just kind of really started getting involved in uh, in this community. And I, you know, for for your listeners who are not from Los Angeles, there's probably some sort of close uh, analogy to this in your hometown. But in Los Angeles, it's very pronounced. Uh, there's there's glass and steel and wealth and fanciness and Hollywood and rich people and culture and all these things happening out in LA. And then you sort of cross into Skid Row in LA and it's, it's this like, I might be off by a little bit, but it's, you know, it's probably like one square mile, maybe a half a square mile. It's just the most concentrated section of abject poverty. I, I mean, I personally had ever seen in my mm. life. Mm. Um, and it's, it's uh, I think the numbers come out to uh, seven to nine, maybe seven to 9,000 homeless people uh, of many living on the streets. Uh, some of them are lucky enough to have a bed in a mission. Uh, some of them are in these sort of single room occupancy uh, apartments, uh, kind of, you know, re reallocated hotel rooms from kind of old, a uh, little more kind of beat up hotels. Um, and uh, to me, it was shocking mm. uh, to see this level of, mm. of poverty and struggle. And once I got to, and, and this is the key point. Once I got to know these people who were in my classes, who I was helping write resumes, I go, oh, you have a nice resume. You've, oh, you were, you were an accountant? Oh, you had a nice sales job? Oh, you're, uh, oh, you're, you're a mother of two kids. Mm. Oh, mm. Uh, and all of a sudden it didn't seem like, oh, every homeless person you see isn't face down in a gutter with a needle stuck in their uh, arm. Uh, and and there are those people, and they're human too. But I, I, it, it, it was amazing to me mm. to see that for many people, uh, this was it was a very temporary thing. It wasn't going to be a long thing for them. And for some people, it was a chronic, and it was a long period. And um, my uncle, my mom's brother, uh, schizophrenic, um, ended up homeless, actually in Los Angeles for a period of time. Um, so wow. I really, I, I kind of saw that was, that was part of my awareness when I was a kid, I'd, I'd get calls from uncle Craig and Craig would be doing the, I mean, this is from a, another era, but he would be like, you know, uh, as we sort of referred to the hobos back in the old day, hopping the rails and riding the trains, wow. uh, we'd get a call yeah. from Montana or Florida or Tennessee or Texas. And it was uncle Craig, uh, calling, looking for a little bit of money. Can you wire me some money to just get me through? And, um, so when I was in LA and was, uh, working and kind of making some money and on part of the, the glitz and glam of Hollywood, uh, but now aware of Skid Row and now knowing where Craig had actually lived for a period mm. of time in his mm. life, mm. um, I said, holy cow, this is, uh, this is really wild. And like, you know, like I said before. Every, every city has some version of this. It's just very exaggerated in, in Los Angeles uh, because that's the way the city has organized it, that it's, you know, that it, that it was to be contained into a certain area. Um, and that's a policy decision yeah. to bring all these people there. It's a policy yeah. decision. Yeah. Someone made a choice about that. 
all the providers yeah. and uh, and the criminalization of homelessness. Uh, so uh, for people to be uh, who are looking for a place to, to rest outside of a, a store that's closed at the end of the day uh, to be arrested for loitering and, and brought in uh, to have a criminal record for poverty, um, you know, to me didn't seem right. And as I started to dig more deeply into it, I looked at this long history of uh, you know, and, and, and having the chance to read some of the great writers like uh, Michelle Alexander's book on Jim Crow and uh, mass incarceration, uh, Kelly Lytle Hernandez's book on, um, on uh, City of Inmates on Los Angeles, really getting a chance to look at the long history of the criminalization of poverty. And so, mm. you know, Back into the 20s and 30s and 40s, itinerant workers coming from other states who didn't have opportunities, you know, were criminalized for loitering in the town squares and were basically made to join uh, working sort of the chain gangs, I guess, back in the day. Right. And they're the ones who built uh, our early freeways and uh, and uh, and Sunset Boulevard. And uh, a lot of what's in downtown L.A. Right, right now was built by people who had come to Los Angeles for opportunity, who didn't have jobs, who were uh, made to, you know, who were locked up and put on chain gangs because they did not have uh, they did not have work. Um, wow. So um, I have uh, I, I really tried to. Uh, I've tried to illustrate that and I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been really, uh, really very blessed uh, in that uh, I, I went, I got into the UCLA School of uh, Public Policy into their Master's in Public Policy program back in 2010, 2011. And um, I went in, I wanted to work on educational attainment and poverty alleviation issues. Uh, but met a guy named Mark Kleiman, who was involved in criminal justice and drug policy. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what the nexus was, but I just knew he was a genius, truly, truly a genius. I mean, sometimes we call people geniuses, and, but Mark was actually, <laughs> actually a genius. Um, and he was kind enough to take me under his wing and, uh, and be my uh, academic advisor. And then when I was done with the program to hire me on to, to run his, uh, his, um, his research and uh, consulting firm, uh, Botech, for, which I did for five years. Um, but that connected me deeply into the world of criminal justice reform mm. and drug policy reform. Mm. And uh, when he went off to New York, to start a research uh, center at NYU, uh, he left me his classes, and that sort of gave me the opportunity to uh, to teach criminal justice and drug policy reform at uh, at UCLA. And uh, so that's that's sort of how I ended up being where I am today. But it's um, it's uh, what a circuitous route, and um, what an amazing uh, what ama- what an amazing opportunity to be able to get a chance now to be able to work with some of these groups that are doing such great work for, uh, for people who are down and out and uh, to be able to advocate for black and Brown communities. And when I say that, and I, I, this is a very important point and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just, you know, uh, uh, let the conversation go back to you to to redirect because I know I'm, I'm I'm sort of uh, on on a rift right now, but I, uh, um, I, always need to remind myself of who I am. 
and of uh, and, and people hate it when I say this, but um, I have to own my white privilege. Yeah, and I know people cringe when they hear white privilege, but I well, have... well, white white people mostly cringe when they hear white right, privilege. Right, right. <laughs> but I but I I have to own my white privilege. Yeah. Um, in that uh, I have been given so many opportunities, not because I'm white, but I, they, they, those opportunities weren't taken away from me because I was black. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure I've worked hard. A lot of people work hard. Uh, do I deserve what I have? Sure. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to say I don't deserve what I have or that uh, that anything's been given to me uh, unfairly, but. The, the doors that have been left open for me, I should say, there have been doors left open for me that would be closed on other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have chosen to walk through those doors. And, and many people don't make the choice to walk through the doors. So I think there are a lot of people who don't acknowledge their white privilege. Yeah. <laughs> because they don't go, well, you know, nothing's been given to me. Well, you're like, yeah, there's a lot that's been given to you. Maybe you didn't pick it up. And do anything with it, <laughs> but but it's but it's there, and it's well. Always, the language it's, of it's like the deserve, even the deserve language, kind of is uh, like if you in, like uh, if you sort of have this full throated belief that everything you have is by your by dint of your own will and effort alone then you have to inevitably believe it follows by logic that everything someone doesn't have is also, they deserve that. It's also by dint of their effort or skill or lack of it alone. And well, that myth may feel really good if you've got things that you like and things that keep you safe and keep you warm and keep you fed. That myth is also really destructive. If you're someone who is like, like so many of these people you work with, like really has caught a bad break and really wants to work your way out. And then like to then have the added baggage of going on, uh, like how many people sit there going, I must deserve this, right? Because we have this cultural myth that if you don't have a certain amount of things, that's on you, not on us, right? And I just like really appreciate that you're, that if there's a both end here, there's both the truth that we are individuals who have the, have access to unique gifts and resources and we're in context that may or may not privilege those gifts and resources. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like we just like, there's nothing, the amazing thing about admitting that is that it doesn't, t- like, it doesn't have to take away any of your gifts. And I sense that you know that, but a lot of us don't. We fear that if we admit that truth, we lose all of our gifts. And it's like, no, actually you can admit that truth. And actually now look at someone like Brad Rowe start to have more fun with your gifts because you realize you can make more of an impact and show up in places that otherwise you'd be scared to because you'd have to actually look and face some of the things that you'd rather not. It's rather, it's easier to just believe the myth. So it's like I, now you actually have permission <laughs> to go places that other people, other white, white bodied people would be afraid to go. Cause you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. Now I can hang. Yeah. Now we can hang. Now you and I can hang because now I can meet you as a human because at least I can admit that I've had some advantages that you haven't had. So I'm really touched by it. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andy. And, you know, it's uh, just think about how capricious uh, the, the, the system can be and how just befuddling it can be if you're trying to navigate it. Um, so think about the fact that, you know, all, all of these, uh, you know, and disproportionately these, these black and brown communities have been impacted by the war on drugs. 
And uh, people have been criminalized and spent time behind bars for uh, trafficking, selling, possessing, using something like marijuana. And so now in states like California and many others across the state, we have legalized cannabis. And we're trying to create an industry now to, for people to grow, cultivate, manufacture, distribute, sell cannabis and to create jobs and tax revenue and do all of these laudable things with the cannabis industry. And this is one of the issues I'm trying to figure out right now. Um, and I'm doing it with one of my UCLA research groups. We're doing a, a demography across the state of California, both the cannabis uh, owner operators, the businesses and the employees, but also of consumers. So there's this, there's this interesting catch 22 in which um, we're trying to expunge people's criminal records who had uh, either to uh, reclassify felonies down to misdemeanors for ca- for uh, cannabis offenses or to uh, just clean, just completely clean the misdemeanors away yeah. uh, so that they're gone and they never existed. Well, so now we have certain cities like Oakland and other cities are going to be doing and, and are doing this across the country where one of the conditions for receiving a social equity uh, license is that you have a criminal record that you were disproportionately <laughs> impacted in the war on drugs. So some of these people have had their, their felonies reclassified as misdemeanors or their misdemeanors cleaned away. And now they have to prove the fact that they have oh, served time sweet Christmas. or that oh. they just have been treated like hell for the last three decades. And this has all been cleaned away and they're trying to get social preferential treatment for social equity license. And they're going, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but I just, you have, it it was there, it was there nine months ago, man. And it's gone now. And, you know, so you kind of like sit there and you're going, oh my gosh, you know, all of the good intentions that came from trying to reform these laws and expunge the records and reclassify these offenses to create better opportunities, you know, having these things on your record uh, traditionally are, you know, they prevent you from getting scholarships or benefits or housing or, you know, all these different things that we want uh, in, you know, know, whatever it is. Uh, And so, and so now we're, you know, we've got to figure out the uh, sort of the, the, the the counter, uh, the, the counter reality to that is how do we, how do we handle these things? And so now we're trying to work with uh, the Bureau of Cannabis Control and some other government agencies to try and figure out some solutions where how do you give some someone sort of a, a, a tier one uh, classification that's not necessarily a criminal record, but it says that they should be given preferential treatment yeah. in order to, to be able to participate in this thing. And also the cultural biases that are such a challenge in this whole thing where you have people who did not experience uh, the, 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 uh, the, the rough treatment of, of the war on drugs and are going, well, why should someone who has a drug offense uh, be given preferential treatment on getting one of these social equity licenses? And you're like, you know what? You need to just kind of, <laughs> you need to just back off, dude. Yeah. This is like, you know, yeah. you need to go read these 10 books and this, this, his, these histories and, like then we can, then then let's talk about this question that you have, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I really like the thing that I'm tuning into amidst all of this, Brad. And by the way, I want to check on your time because we started a little late and we're at technically at I'm our good. time boundary. So yeah, let's maybe we can take another 10, 15 minutes to just jam. Yeah, absolutely. Let's yeah, do it. Great. Great. Like there's so much here and and you're I know you're like way more of a policy wonk than I am, and then many people are, and that's really cool. So we could go down that path deeper. But okay. I, I maybe want to underline this one of the threads that that keeps emerging for me in a sort of gentle way, which is this recognition that you seem to be someone who, regardless of context, gets really curious. You said you're a storyteller and you love to tell stories. And maybe as a result of that, you you seem really curious about other people and their stories. Yeah. And I sense that that I sense that that has really served you one in obvious ways as an actor, how do you inhabit a character that isn't you and that doesn't, that doesn't check the demographics of your background. Right. And I know you've done that on many occasions. And then how do you like sit across from someone or next to someone who's been on a very different journey, economically, culturally, all of that, and just be with them and understand them and support them. And then how do you write policy and create policy that actually honors all of that complexity as opposed to, to sort of this one size fits all approach that never actually works. So I just like really attuned to the, the, your subtle, persistent commitment to other people's realities, as opposed to the stereotypes of their realities. I just think it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's, that's, that's a lot. And uh, I, I guess I'll try to distill it down to a couple of really basic ideas. So um, the, uh, the, the log line, I'll call it that, for public policy research is advancing knowledge in the public interest. Okay, super simple idea, right? Advancing knowledge, mm-hmm. very, very critical idea, advancing knowledge in the public interest. And so what's happened with this sort of war on truth that we've seen, you know, over the last, uh, I don't know, we'll say, especially in the last four or five, six years, um, has been an affront to public policy because mm. we're advancing knowledge in the public interest. And right. when, when, when actually the idea of knowledge or of evidence-based practices or of uh, coming across truth in an unbiased way has been under attack, um, that's an affront to public policy. It's an affront to advancing mm. knowledge in the public mm. interest. Mm. Um, this other area that is an intersection for me is, is, is acting. And it's, yeah. uh, and, and the, the log line for acting is creating realistic behavior in imaginary circumstances, mm. creating realistic behavior in imaginary circumstances. And so realistic behavior is something that any of us can, we feel it. You know, you watch a, you watch a, well, you watch someone in real life, right? If you see someone acting authentically and real, if they're real, you go, oh yeah, I, that, that person's real. I can, I can connect with that, right? That's, that makes sense to me. The, the world they're living in and the way they communicate, the way they talk, the way they move, the way their body language, uh, maybe with an artist, the way they sing, maybe with an artist, the way they paint that, you know, that, that seems authentic. Mm. Um, <clears throat> That's real behavior in imaginary circumstances if you're bringing it to the creation of something in, in the arts. 
Um, and being trained as an actor, that's the basic exercise. And you do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different technical aspects that you get into. There's, uh, there's sense memory. Uh, there's a lot of the research that you do on all of your characters. If you do characters, you have to break them down and you have to, you have to go deep into their history as much as it relates to whatever project you're working on. And you never know where that character history is going to intersect with the written material that you have to work with. So as an actor, your tools are, you have a script, so you have written words on a page, and then you have to break down each of the scenes into what we call beats. And in every single beat, you have obstacles and you have your characters challenged to overcome those obstacles. And so you break down every page into beats and then you, what are my challenges? And usually the challenges are in front of you from the other. If it's a well-written scene, it's the other actors are presenting the obstacles and you have to kind of dance around them and get past them or you got to kind of just plow right through them or whatever. It is. <laughs> um, and so uh, this, 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 this study of bringing realistic behavior to imaginary circumstances requires that you uh, develop a real seamless case of empathy for the person that you're portraying. And sometimes it's a cop. And sometimes it's a clergy and sometimes it's a gay person. Sometimes it's a straight person. Sometimes they're rich. Sometimes they're poor. Sometimes they're in a position of authority. Sometimes they're in a position of uh, not being in power. Uh, sometimes you're in pain. Sometimes you're in a position of, of glory. Mm. Um, and we have all in our own ways experienced these things. But that, that is the point at which you can access the work, right? And so it's important for an actor to live a full life. Like, that's your homework every day. Go live a full life. Mm. Um, uh, uh, let, let, you know, let, let yourself be hurt fully. Let mm. yourself mm. win in a, in a complete way. Um, connect fully with other people. Um, always... Always keep your eye out for uh, different ways that human beings interact with each other. Watch the way that a person consoles someone by putting their fingertips on their shoulders uh, if they don't know them well. Watch how that turns into a, a kind of a more a tight grasp on the top of the shoulder blade if there's history between the two. Mm. Watch mm. how that turns into the pulling on the inside of the neck towards that person if there is a mentorship relationship with that person. Mm. Watch how that turns into the full uh, grasping of someone into the crook of your elbow if you are sharing that pain and you have a deep connection with the person. So right there, we're watching the complete transformation and you can witness the, the level of, of relationship between uh, two people when someone is, when the, when the receiver of that action is in pain. And when the person who's trying to console that pain, you completely understand the level of intimacy between those individuals mm, mm. when you have the touch of a fingertip all the way through the grip and all the way down into the crook of an elbow and drawing someone's 
head and neck towards someone when you're looking at the, the connection between those two people. And that's such a minor thing when you look at the physicality of it all. Mm. But it talks it talks volumes to sometimes what is probably at that point decades of experience between mm. two people. Mm. And you have to be able to see that. Because if you don't see it, it completely rings a false note. If this is your long law, if this is your if this is your uncle who has been through hell with you and back, or this is the guy that you've been in the trenches with in the military, or this is the person in the cubicle next to you for the last eight years, and you just got fired. And this is your bro that you've been going to the Olive Garden with every week, <laughs> you know? He's going to get you in by the elbow to your head, and you guys are going to touch heads. And you guys can go, fuck, man, this is this is brutal, man. I'm so this is wrong. I'm so sorry. It's bullshit that you mm. got fired. Mm. Or if it's your mm. uncle and oh, my God, I can't believe you just lost your kid. I can't believe you lost your job. I can't believe you, whatever it is. Mm. It rings authentic when we see that happen in a certain way. And in the same way, if it's like if it's if it's the new person in the office or if it's the the new in-law who just came into the family who doesn't necessarily have a connection it's just got to be the fingertips mm. and it's mm. i'm here for you and i i feel your pain but it would be awfully weird if that person started pulling you in tighter and guess what the receiver of that of that consolation from that individual is going to recoil yeah <laughs> they're going to recoil if they get drawn in in that way like what is no, we're that's we're not. This isn't us. Yeah, like, we're not that connected. Yeah, and so um, I, I I think that uh, that you know this is that's just a very small action, and it's in one circumstance, but it speaks volumes to uh, two actors, the receiver and the giver of the constellation. There, where uh, you're going to see a very real thing happen and any of us as a viewer any of us as a as someone who's observing this behavior is going to know when it rings true when it's yeah. real when it's not what i and, really uh, oh go ahead yeah sorry. yeah go. no i'm just, no, I was, uh, I was just yeah uh, sorry i was i was just i was just going to add that i think that uh the the background work that we do to get into those relationships is 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 important but also uh, we are given roles in which we're not, we wouldn't necessarily be empathetic to that individual. Yeah. Um, I've had to play very dubious, not good people. I've, you know, there was, <laughs> there was, there was a string, I don't know, probably in the early 2000s when I kept getting, I kept getting these sort of boy next door murderer roles. <laughs> And I, was like, oh, I can really? see that. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of, but, but I also, I had to bring the humanity to them. Yeah. They were sociopaths in that moment in their lives. They were doing abhorrent, abhorrent things. But I also had to know that that person woke up in the morning and put two socks on and they put their pants on one leg at a time and yeah. they got in their car and maybe their car didn't start up and they were frustrated with that. And maybe they didn't get the right change at the drive through. And all of that same stuff is going to inform that person's behavior there. You know, they the the, the punchline with someone uh, who, you know, that or I should say the headline for the individual is he's a murderer, but a murderer also lives a normal life most of the time. Mm. 
uh, 0.5% of the time, they're going to do something that is going to define them for the rest of their lives. Wow. Uh, and it's, it's awful. And also great people, the people that we put up on pedestals who are our heroes are only heroes 0.5% of the time. <laughs> Such a great insight. You know, yeah. right? So yeah. the, the person who has made the Nobel Prize discovery or the person who finished the, the, who got across the finish line faster than anyone else in the Olympics or the person who hoists the trophy up is that person for a small percentage of the time. But we also have to know that much of the rest of their, their days are spent as ordinary human beings and they're, they're, they're human. They're well, three-dimensional. No yes. one's two-dimensional. Yes. And I'm so, I'm, there's, a, there's a lot coming through for me as you share all that. So let me see if I can kind of like tease it apart because I think there's a couple points that are really powerful. Like one, I appreciate how you just made visible, for me at least, and I suspect for others listening, the, the almost childlike like attention to detail because, you know, like that's, kids learn body language by watching adult body language. And in that same way, you're like, Hey, here's the inner child who has to show up and really notice how do people console each other? And so you like took this like very small gesture and you made it visible and you said, oh, like acting, you just made the process of visible acting for me. And I was really psyched about that because it's so, if someone said to me, Andy, like, okay, act this scene, I wouldn't even know where to start. (laughs) You know, I'd be like, okay, I guess I need to be sad. What is, you know, and this gets all analytical, but you're like, okay, I know because I've seen and I've experienced and I've lived and now I have access to it. I can bring it forward in this moment. And it's just such a a craft as much as a, uh, as much as a talent. And I really appreciate the way way you made the craft visible, like the way that you took us into that. Cause a lot of people are mystified by acting, right? And it's just like, oh, it's just it's just about living life fully and paying close attention. And if you can do those two things, then you have a shot at being a good actor. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, the other like thing, anything, when, when when you see it done well, it looks, uh, you know, it looks really easy, right? Yes. Just, yes. just like you know, when I when I see Michael Jordan, uh, you know, taking off at the free throw line and dunking, it, you know, it looks so it looks easy. So easy. Right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. When you see when you see great acting, uh, you know, it's it 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 does look easy, but uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly something that does have a, a lot of a lot of craft to it, and I think it's uh, boy, it, you're you're really standing up on the tight wire. Yeah, uh, yeah. the tightrope when you're uh, because you're you are you are very exposed and it's you it's you on camera you're you're, you're the one who's either going to uh, get judged for your good work or not so and I think that that's the thing that we have to try to not be too scared of be not too to try to not to be too scared of failing or of looking bad or inauthentic because the second you start kind of thinking about that, you're going to fall, you fall you're out of it. Yeah. You, you you're fall out of the it. Tight wire. You just yeah. got to, you got to, like you said, you got to just stick with the craft, stick with the work and uh, do, do your best work and hopefully something right. comes of it. Right. Well, it's just this, this, the, I'm struck by the deep attention to and conversation with reality that you just described. And I'm struck by how you're now applying that in the actual world, right? Like if acting is, uh, embodying real behavior and imaginary circumstances. And in a way, 
crafting policy is like imagining future circumstances that allow for better behaviors or allow for healthier behaviors. Like there's a sort of beautiful, like, yeah, I just I like see that. this I like, like inverse relationship between the two, you know, yeah, and it's sort of a sense, yeah, well, if we great. want people to be <laughs> whole and healed and engaged, well, what conditions are we putting them in? And yeah. You know, like like the toll, the mm. putting the money in the toll, getting ha- getting stuck in a line, getting all of those things are inventions. Like we made up tolls. Someone said, like, you're, we're going to put tolls on the highway. <laughs> and then someone said, oh, you know, we're going to make them electronic so they're not so inconvenient anymore, right? And so it's just like all of these little choices that we live in mm-hmm. as a policy mm-hmm. person are like now trying to say, how can we make these conscious and move them so that people can live in this world we've built for ourselves with more ease and grace and success. So I just am really mm. like touched by that too. Good, good stuff, Andy. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Brad, <laughs> this has been so fun. I like, I feel like we could keep jamming for another hour. Uh, I, I, I want to sure. honor your time and, and my time. And yeah. I'm sadly, we have to bring it to a close, but I wonder as you sit with the fullness of our conversation today, if there's anything else that, you feel called to close us with uh, by way of, of sharing with folks who are listening in? Uh, I want to bring it back to the children. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, um, I, I know this uh, pandemic has been hard on all of us, but I think that in this critical period of development for little kids, you know, uh, teens, uh, even older kids, and all of us, you know, we're, we're, we're all children, we're all kids. But I, I really want us to, maybe if, if you're listening to this, uh, take a second to think about a kid, maybe your kid if you have one, uh, but a kid, and try to turn around and just sort of look at them empathetically and think about the things that they have missed out on mm. Uh, during this period, and, and it was just even something as simple as we were talking about earlier, uh, the the exposure to other children, uh, a little bit of the the isolation, or or that not not being able to be a kid in the way that kids usually can be when they're able to be out in the world. So um, I I think that uh, I think we have to acknowledge that, and, and let's maybe we can do a check in. Uh, with uh, some of the kids around us and just say, mm. um, gosh, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe if, if they're, if they're older and aware of it, uh, you know, last year, this time, remember that you were able to go to a birthday party or you were able to go to the playground or we were able to go to Chuck E. Cheese or, you know, whatever it is you do uh, or to play on your sports team or be in your chess club or participate in drama or mm. whatever it is. And, uh, I, 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 you know, just, just, uh, acknowledge, I think even just the acknowledgement of it mm. is, is, mm. is, a, is a good deal. And I think we're far enough into this thing that I, it's become a little too normal probably. Oh, um, yeah. So let's, yeah. let's take a moment and check back in with the kids and, 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 and let them remember what it was like to be connected with their classmates and their cohort and the other kids around them. And, uh, and, uh, with the full expectation and hope that we'll get back to that again. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Yeah. And I, and I, I know I just said I was going to give you the last word, but what you said really sparked a couple of things in me that I want to just (laughs) underline, which is like this, this recognition, what you said, we've, we've been into this a little too long that it's almost starting to feel normal. In a way, I actually think the the work that you're doing is an invitation to that on every level. It's like 
where we are now as a civilization, as a society, as a country, we could just easily say we've been a little into this a little too long. This stuff feels like normal, but it doesn't have to be. We can just acknowledge that kids and adults in our lives have been through things that we haven't or haven't been through things that we have. And while we may not be able to solve that or change that, we can't change it for our kids that there's been a pandemic, we can slow down and connect. And I just just really appreciate how you embody that that invitation from kids through adults to every walk of life to slow down and, and if nothing else to connect and say, we could do this better. And I believe in you. So I just wanted to underline that and, and give yeah. you appreciation for that. Yeah, great words of wisdom. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, Brad, this has been a treat. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Uh, and I can't wait to the next time we connect, my friend. All right, man. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.